This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, terror and suspense, casual ableism, and implied violence and threats of violence. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 312. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastical world of Metamore City. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 53 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Brian and Fiona met up with Miriam Bakhtivar, who had told them that she was setting a trap for Victor. Miriam had told the Summer Cell that she had recovered Abby Preston, the telepathic prodigy whom Victor groomed for years and then took with him when he left the Collective. Victor's anger makes him reckless, and Miriam intended to use that against him. All of this was a lie. Miriam has been turned into a vampire, and Malcolm Ardvalos commanded Miriam to capture Brian and Fiona and enslave them to her will. Brian and Fiona were responsible for a destructive raid on one of Malcolm's holdings, and domesticating the two telepaths will be a way for him to regain face among his peers in the Syndicate. Miriam hates Malcolm and her undead existence, but she cannot disobey his commands. She crafted the pretext of hunting down Victor because she knew this would be a powerful incentive to lure in Brian and Fiona, both of whom feel personally betrayed by their former mentor. But Miriam was not expecting the sudden appearance of Daniel Sharabi, who joined the group just as they were about to head out on their supposed mission. Daniel isn't much of a telepath, and he was never trained as a psyop like Brian or Fiona, but he's a damned good martial artist, and he's been Victor's regular sparring partner for the last five years. Daniel has his own score to settle with Victor, who tricked him into joining him on a mission for the Syndicate, a mission where Victor killed two of Daniel's childhood friends. Daniel has told no one about his involvement in that disaster, which could lead to him being exiled or killed by the Collective if the truth were ever revealed. Fiona tried to keep Daniel from joining the mission on the grounds that it was too dangerous. Daniel, taking a page from Fiona's own book, used logic to argue that they needed him. Daniel knows how Victor fights and can keep him off balance so he can't use his deadly telekinesis. And he came prepared, armed with three knives and his tonfa sticks. And, as he pointed out to Miriam, his whole body is a weapon. Grudgingly, Fiona agreed to let Daniel join them. 
Meanwhile, Sasha has been trying to rally defenses around the hospital to protect a pregnant teenager from the ex-boyfriend who wants to kill her. The girl was checked into the hospital by Danny under the pseudonym Jenny Bloggs, a codeword for a battered woman seeking asylum. Only Danny and Daniel know the truth. Jenny is Abby Preston, who really did run away from Victor and come looking for help. But Daniel doesn't know that Abby is the supposed bait that Miriam is using to lure in Victor. He thinks that by taking part in Miriam's plan, he's being proactive about protecting Abby. In reality, by leaving the hospital when he did, Daniel has left Abby much more vulnerable when Victor comes looking for her. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Luster Chapter 53 The commuter tunnel was dimly lit and smelled of urine and industrial solvents. Rats scurried out of sight as the four sighs approached vanishing through cracks in the curving brick walls. The fluorescent lights buzzed, adding a steady undercurrent to contrast with the sound of their footsteps. Bringing up the rear, Brian cast frequent glances over his shoulder. The echoes in the tunnel played tricks on him. Several times he thought he heard someone else coming up behind them, but when he looked back, he saw only an empty passage. His telepathic senses were similarly blank, revealing no other sentient minds in their vicinity. It was, he thought, one of the loneliest places he had ever been. A hundred years ago, the commuter tunnels had been major arteries for foot traffic in Metamore City, especially in the winter months, when a heavy snowfall could block the surface streets for days. As the upper levels of the city were constructed, though, the middle class migrated away from ground level, and the tunnels fell into less frequent use. Nowadays, they mostly served to move factory workers between their job sites and the subway stations. During off hours, they served as a transit system for the things that hunted at street level, the beasts and hunters who lacked even the vampire's thin veneer of civilized restraint. Brian reached down and patted his gun for reassurance. He hoped that Miriam had some solid wards in place at the safe house. This far down, no one was going to hear it if something decided to attack them. For what it was worth, the elder didn't seem to be worried. She walked ahead of them at a steady, determined pace, not sparing a glance at the holes in the walls or the shifting shadows around them. I don't suppose there's much that she's afraid of, he thought. I wonder how often she's had to actually use all that power she has. I wonder how often she's been forced to kill. Fiona cast a look over her shoulder at him, fixing him with unreadable eyes. He doubted that she'd actually heard his thoughts, but she'd obviously picked up on the emotions behind them. With an effort, he pushed the melancholy to the back of his mind bringing his focus back to the present moment. Whatever his reservations about killing a fellow sigh, he couldn't afford to indulge them. Victor needed to be put down. 
Like it or not, they were the ones in the position to do it. There would be time for regrets and self-examination later, if they survived. Fiona slowed her steps for a moment, falling into line beside Daniel. She murmured something to him, and he pulled out his tonfa sticks, passing one of them to her. She examined it closely as they walked, running her fingers over the polished surface of the wood. Miriam led them through a heavy steel door and up a flight of steps so old that they might once have led into open air. Now the massive edifice of Connolly Tower surrounded them on all sides, the faded yellow bricks giving way to the soft gray of reinforced concrete. Another steel door waited at the top of the stairs, this one keyed to a security panel. Miriam waved a keycard over the sensor, then entered a passcode on the touchscreen. The door clicked, and she held it open for the rest of them. Brian noticed that she left the door unlocked behind them. The security door opened onto a small lobby with a pair of lift tubes. A sign on the wall listed the names and suite numbers of the businesses that occupied the tower's first level. Beyond the lobby, an interior corridor ran to the left and right. It was three meters wide, with ceilings at least twice that height. Narrow tire tracks could be seen here and there on the concrete floors, probably from forklifts or other small industrial vehicles. This way, the elder said, leading them down the hallway to the right. Daniel cast a dubious look at their surroundings. They had gone maybe fifty meters when he spoke up. Alder Bakhtavar, are you sure that Victor's going to follow us in here? Miriam glanced back at him with a small frown. Why would he not? Well, just look at this place, Daniel said, gesturing at a security panel on the wall. All the doors are linked to these card readers, and I'm not seeing a lot of exits. Even if he can get an access card, Brian could just override it, and Victor knows that. He shook his head. It's too obvious of a trap. Vic's not going to fall for it. Brian frowned. Daniel's right. This place is defender's ground all the way. Coming after us here would go against everything Victor ever taught us. Miriam smiled thinly and gave them a slow nod, conceding the point. Normally you'd be right, of course. But Victor's rage is stronger than his judgment. Make him angry enough and you can blind him to the obvious. He pinned all of his hopes on Abby Preston. Now that she has left him, we believe that he will be irrational enough to follow the trail we've laid for him. Daniel nodded thoughtfully. Okay, I can buy that. But he's not a moron. If this is going to work, we can't give him a chance to stop and think. My thoughts exactly, Miriam said stopping at one of the interior doors and swiping her card to open it. Come, we'll lay our trap for him here. The door opened to reveal a vast loading bay, the end point in the assembly line for whatever factory filled this section of the tower. A large conveyor belt entered the room on the far left side, ending at a broad, elevated platform. On the far right was an enormous hangar door, large enough to admit three skimmer trucks or one good-sized cargo tender. Large wooden crates filled most of the remaining space, turning the floor into a maze-like pattern of narrow walkways, with only limited visibility. 
The crates were about two meters on each side and stacked in columns, three to six crates high. Brian had no idea what the crates contained, but it was obviously something heavy, or they would have used cardboard instead of wood. Even a teak as strong as Victor would have a hard time moving these things. Overhead, a gantry crane ran on the long track that zigzagged across the loading bay, supported by a network of steel girders that hung from the ceiling. The heavy loading hook attached to the crane would allow the crates to be lifted from the end of the conveyor belt, placed in stacks, and then loaded onto the cargo vehicles when they arrived. Brian's military training quickly saw the value of the location. As strong as his telekinesis was, even Victor couldn't fly. The boxes would hem him in, block the lines of sight that his power required, and form a set of stable platforms from which they could attack him. Victor's PK shield was damned good at stopping bullets from a single pistol, but a simultaneous attack from four or five different directions should overwhelm his defenses and bring him down. Brian lingered in the entrance as he took stock of the room and its features. Daniel stood beside him, apparently doing the same. Miriam had gone on a few paces ahead of them, but stopped and waited when she realized what they were doing. Fiona stood between them and the Elder, with perhaps a meter of space on either side. Brian glanced at her briefly as he scanned the room. Then he stopped and looked again, more closely. Fiona was carefully looking at nothing in particular, her eyes on a spot a little to Miriam's right. To a casual observer, she would have seemed perfectly calm, her thoughts and emotions locked behind iron walls of self-control. But Brian had been living with Fee for years, and he saw the tension in her limbs, the careful balance in her footing, the whiteness of her knuckles as she gripped the tonfa in both hands, the subtle flaring of her nostrils as she scented the air. Something had her keyed up, and she was doing her damnedest not to give it away. A knot of tension began to form in Brian's stomach. He turned to Miriam. This is a good spot, but we'd better get into position. Are your people already here? I can't sense anyone but us. They're in one of the offices on the other side, Miriam said. We've lined it with lead shielding and cold iron to block scrying. She nodded toward the narrow walkway in front of them. It's right this way. Brian nodded, and they began moving forward again. And that's where you're keeping the girl? That's right. Miriam said. She's a little shaken, of course, but she's handling it well. Daniel stopped in his tracks. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You're talking about Abby, the girl Victor took with him? Of course, Brian said, frowning. Who else would we use to lure him down here? But Abby's not here, Daniel said. She's back at the hospital. She just left Victor earlier today and came looking for me. We're giving her asylum. He looked at Miriam, confusion written large across his face. Why would you tell them she's... Before he could finish the sentence, Fiona brought down the tonfa over her upraised knee, splitting it in half with a loud crack. She had twisted the baton just so as she struck it, exploiting some unseen flaw that ran diagonally through the grain of the wood. In the blink of an eye, she had turned the blunt-ended weapon into a pair of jagged spikes of roughly equal length. 
She tossed one of the pieces to Daniel. Grasping the other piece with an overhand grip, she lunged at Miriam, aiming it straight for the woman's heart. The entire process had taken less than a second, but as fast as Fiona was, Miriam was faster. She flickered out of the way, a whisper of motion too fast for the eye to follow. Brian blinked, and the elder was standing atop one of the nearby crates. You couldn't have kept your mouth shut for thirty more seconds, Fiona muttered. Miriam's face had changed, her brow wrinkling into an inhuman, predatory expression. Her eyes glowed yellow-green in the dim light of the loading bay, and when she bared her teeth at them, Brian saw a set of long, gleaming fangs. Oh, gods! Not her! Not Miriam! With visible difficulty, Miriam forced her face to return to its usual look. I'm very sorry, children, she said, her voice rough with suppressed emotion. But the master says that you must pay for your part in the raid on Viscount Security. Other figures emerged from hiding places throughout the loading bay, their eyes shining and filled with hungry anticipation. Brian looked out at the corridor and saw more vamps converging from both directions, blocking off all avenues of escape. Surrender, and I will accept you as thralls in my house, under my protection. Miriam's voice was firm but gentle. It will be degrading, but it will stop the cycle of violence. Your families will be safe. Her eyes glistened with sadness and regret. And I promise to treat you more kindly than I was treated. Brian shot a quick glare at Fiona. You knew? Smelled wrong, Fiona murmured, still looking up at Miriam. Pheromones were off. Why didn't you do something sooner? She glanced at him then, the pain obvious in her eyes. I thought she had the girl. Daniel backed into position beside Brian and Fiona, forming a loose circle with their backs facing each other. Victor's not coming, is he? It was more a statement than a question. Doesn't look like it, Brian agreed. Enough of this, Miriam snapped. Choose, quickly. Will you surrender to me or not? Fiona set her jaw and raised her makeshift stake in a combat stance. We'd rather die, she said. Miriam just nodded sadly. She gestured, and the vampires began to close in. Crap, Daniel said. The prenatal psychiatrist came and went, leaving the mysterious Jenny Bloggs with an amulet imbued with a sleep enchantment. It would allow both Jenny and her baby to rest, without risk of overdosing the child. Dr. Carlyle promised to return tomorrow for a more extended appointment, but for now, at least, Jenny was sleeping peacefully. Sasha was just coming back from checking on the other patients in the ward when her phone rang. She checked the caller ID before flipping it open. Hey, Bex, did the kid wake you up again? Any concerns she might have had about Rebecca's sleep cycle were immediately banished by the fear in her lover's voice. Sasha, you've got to get out of there. Something really bad is coming. 
A chill ran through Sasha, but she pushed it back and made herself shift into mission mode. If something was a big enough threat that it was tripping Rebecca's ESP from halfway across the city, she didn't have any time to waste on panicking. What can you tell me? She asked, all business. Not a lot, Rebecca admitted. It's one person, a man, I think, but really mad and really dangerous. He's coming for that girl you're protecting. Sasha looked over at the sleeping Jenny, frowning. How close is he? Close, Rebecca said, sounding frustrated at her power's lack of precision. Like, I don't know, a few hundred meters, maybe? Oh, God, Sasha, he knows where you are. Get everyone out of there. Copy that, Sasha said, and rang off. She ran over to Jenny and pulled off the sleep amulet. While she waited for the girl to wake up, she went and found Morgan, who was now using Timson's office to catch up on some paperwork. We've got to clear this ward, Sasha said. I just got a warning from our Esper that Jenny's boyfriend is on the way. Morgan raised an eyebrow. Can't security deal with that? Based on what Bex told me, apparently not. Do you have room for these women in the pathology ward? Yes, Morgan said cautiously. But that's against regs. Fuck the regs, Sasha snapped. Then, more gently, Morgan, please, I know you're not a spooky, but for Eli's sake, trust me on this. Get them out of here while we still can. This time, the mundane woman obviously heard the desperation in Sasha's voice. She was up and moving with only an instant's hesitation. On her way back to Jenny's room, Sasha reopened the thought link tying her to the security team downstairs. All agents report in, she commanded. A chorus of telepathic voices came back. Most of them reported that their stations were quiet, nothing out of the ordinary. Two of them didn't respond at all. Anyone heard from Connor or Stevens? Sasha asked. A wave of negatives came back. All agents to defensive positions, she said. Far eyes report one alpha coming in hot, range less than half a click. Keep your eyes open and coordinate so he doesn't outflank you. A ripple of confusion came from some of the guards. Far eyes? One of them asked. Alpha? Sasha ground her teeth and made a note to teach military parlance to all members of the hive. An esper and an aggressor, respectively, she said, her annoyance leaking through into her mental voice. I'm moving the target to the crisis room in SL2. Turn on your headset so I can call you when we get there. Jenny was sitting up in bed and radiating worry when Sasha came back to the room. He's here, isn't he? Looks that way, Sasha said. No contact yet, but we're going to get you out of here just in case. There's a crisis room on the second sublevel where you'll be safe until we catch this guy. Jenny nodded and pushed herself unsteadily to her feet. She paused there for a moment, one hand on the bedside table. Apparently the sleep charm had some lingering effects. Sasha took the girl's arm to steady her and led her toward the lift, wondering how Jenny's assailant would choose to show himself. The answer came less than a minute after they entered the lift. A sound like distant thunder rose up from the depths of the tower. The lights went out, replaced by a dim red emergency lamp mounted on the ceiling. 
The lift car shuddered, then jerked to a halt. Jenny and Sasha tumbled to the floor, both of them instinctively shielding the girl's belly against the fall. Sasha landed hard on her back, with Jenny partly on top of her. The wind came out of her in a rush. Sorry, Jenny whispered. Are you all right? Sasha paused to take a mental inventory. She would have a few bruises from that one, but that seemed to be the worst of it. She hadn't felt the crack of breaking ribs or the pop of a shoulder coming out of joint. I'm all right, she gasped, coughing. You? The baby? Jenny nodded once, her facial expressions mostly unreadable in the dim light. I think she's still asleep. That charm must be good for a little while longer, I guess, Sasha said. They clambered to their feet, bracing against each other and the wall of the car. Sasha brushed herself off and went to the control panel underneath the floor buttons. What's going on? Jenny asked. Lost power to the lift, Sasha said. He probably found the circuit breaker and shut it down to try to keep us from leaving. As she spoke, she opened a link back to her security teams and told them to send guards to the other circuit control stations. If their attacker tried to do anything else to mess with the power, they'd be ready for him. The responses that she got back from her team were confusing. Connor and Stevens were still silent, and now so were Hudson and Cutler. The others were all chattering at once, all reporting power outages at their assigned posts. Their fear and anxiety clouded the link, making it hard to pick out their messages among the background noise. The wireless network that ran their comm headsets was down as well, so she couldn't even fall back on voice communication. As the seconds ticked by, though, one fact became clear. It's not just the lift, Sasha whispered, horrified. It's the whole hospital. What? How? Jenny asked. Aren't hospitals supposed to be protected against things like that? Sasha nodded, thinking hard. The hospital's fed by a main conduit that runs all the way down to the reactor under the tower. To cut the power to everything at once, he'd have to shut down that conduit. But that's not something that just anybody could do. You'd need all kinds of security clearances to even learn how, and you'd have to be even higher up before you could access the hospital's schematics. She shook her head, disbelieving. We were in MID for three years before Victor taught us how to... A surge of tangled emotions spilled out from behind Jenny's shields, and Sasha cut herself off in mid-sentence. No coherent thoughts had crept past Jenny's defenses, but the sense of recognition was unmistakable, and so was the fear. Sasha stared at her, all the pieces falling into place in an instant. "'Jenny?' she said slowly and softly. Who is it, exactly, that's after you? Jenny looked away, radiating feelings of shame and soul-sick dread. Sasha reached out her mind and brushed against the girl with a gentle tendril of thought, an invitation to share. Jenny, I can't protect you if I don't know what I'm up against. The teenager bit her lip, obviously thinking hard. Then, before Sasha could react, she reached out and grabbed Sasha's mind with her own, 
opening a channel so broad and strong that it made Sasha's links to the security guards look like the trickle of a garden hose. Thoughts and memories poured into Sasha in a torrent. In less than a second, Jenny Bloggs, or rather, Abby Preston, confessed to Sasha all of the mistakes, lies, and stupid decisions that had brought her to this place. She saw how Victor had turned from savior to monster before Abby's eyes, and the assault that had compelled her to return to the collective. She understood the fear that Abby felt for Darla, her daughter, and her terror at the thought that the elders might kill her baby to keep Victor's genes from being passed on. Most frightening of all, though, was the change in Victor's mind. Abby didn't know what had happened, and Sasha couldn't begin to imagine but somehow he had fragmented his thoughts so that Abby couldn't read them. Which meant that either he was irretrievably insane, or that he'd gotten his hands on some kind of technology that the Hive had never seen before. And either way, he was here, coming for Abby. Sasha looked into Abby's eyes, and the fear in them mirrored her own. "'We've got to get out of here now,' she said." And that's the end of Chapter 53. Come back next time, when Daniel, Brian, and Fiona must fight for their lives against Miriam and her vampire minions. Janine Debier said, Silence is a cage. These words are my wings. So, come fly away with me. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of November 27th through December 3rd. I wrote 810 words this week, over the course of one hour, for an average writing speed of 810 words per hour. I wrote on two out of seven days this week. Looking back at the month of November, I wrote a total of 7,782 words in 16 days, averaging 486 words per day. That ranks 61st out of 79 months since I started this show. Compared to October, my word count increased by 20%, and my writing time increased by 45%. For the second week in a row, I didn't get any fiction writing done this week. The long hours of darkness and cold weather have been weighing heavily on me, and I find that I'm sort of huddling in on myself, conserving my emotional and mental energy, like an animal preparing for hibernation. I did a lot of reading this week, finishing up my edits for Abby Hilton's lullaby story, and went to bed earlier and got up later. It's frustrating to have storytelling to do that I'm not getting done, but I know that sometimes the body needs seasons like these, and never more than now, as we enter the darkest time of the year. Hopefully I'll be able to work through whatever is draining my creative energy soon, and come out the other side rested and ready to write again. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. 
then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.